Good morning. Grace to you and peace, church family, uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Merry Christmas. We're in the fourth week of Advent, as Dan said, and we're continuing our series, meditating on the names Isaiah gives to describe the Christ in that prophecy in chapter 9. Today I have the privilege of continuing our series and exploring the title Prince of Peace. But before we go any further, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the word made flesh. Thank you that this Advent season we get to welcome him, uh, that he put on flesh, was born of a virgin, and was a baby in a manger. Thank you for who uh, that that man became. And uh, Lord, I pray that this morning your spirit would be with us, that it would give us illumination into your word. And I pray also, Father, that uh, you would wield that word upon our hearts to renew our minds to renew our affections for Christ our Lord, our Prince of Peace. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, I want you to travel back in time with me for a bit. <clears throat> Probably not where you expect us to go. We're going to go to the year 1927. So it's a decade beyond the First World War, and the world is still on the mend. The U.S. has still yet to join the ambitious League of Nations, even though Woodrow Wilson, who was the president at the time the war ended, was himself a fundamental proponent and architect of the League of Nations. You might remember that World War I was dubbed the war to end all wars. With the advent of mechanized war and poison gas, the horror of quote-unquote killing fields and trench warfare, you can easily understand why so many wanted that to be the case. Arguably, worldwide sentiment for peace was at an all-time high, and efforts at securing a lasting peace were active and ardent. Nonetheless, the League of Nations was proving to be impotent. Germany was humiliated and resentful because of the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, which ended the war, and this resentment was fueling German aggression and a new fanatical nationalism. And in the States, sentiment for peace was matched in fervor only by an opposition to getting mixed up in another European war. In the midst of this tumult, French foreign minister at the time, a man named Aristide Briand, very French name, he boldly proposed a quote-unquote bilateral non-aggression pact to his fellow world powers. His proposition, get this, was to actually renounce war as an instrument of national policy. In, a, uh, in short, it would attempt to outlaw war itself. A very ambitious proposition indeed. Now you might be thinking, good luck getting anybody to sign that. But you'll be surprised to hear that this pact was indeed adopted and signed by 15 nations, including France, Belgium, Czechoslovakia, the British Empire, Italy, Japan, the U.S., and yes, even Germany. Remember, this is 10 years after World War I. For those of you that are brushed up on your history, the irony is a little thick. This pact was called the Kellogg-Briand Pact, also known as the Paris Pact. It was named for Frank B. Kellogg, the U.S. Secretary of State at the time, and of course, Aristide Briand, the pact's mastermind. Listen to this brief statement from the preamble of the pact, which summarizes it well. Quote, Persuaded that the time has come when a frank renunciation of war as an instrument of national policy should be made. 
to the end that the peaceful and friendly relations now existing between their peoples may be perpetuated. Man, it sure sounds good, right? Who could possibly be opposed to that? Unfortunately, just beyond a decade later, Hitler's blitzkrieg stormed across the Belgian border and on into France, sparking a conflagration that overshadowed even the so-called war to end all wars. This war left an estimated 90 million dead. This Paris Pact was certainly a noble effort, but also, without a doubt, a naive one, too. Perhaps even arrogant. I can't help but wonder if the leaders of Czechoslovakia and Belgium considered the Paris Pact in the face of Germany's aggression on the eve of World War II. Did they pick up the phone to appeal to Hitler? Sir, what about the Paris Pact? Remember that thing? At this point, they probably knew how useless it was. We all long for peace, every one of us, peace without, as well as peace within. Unfortunately, peace always seems to remain elusive, doesn't it? It's easy to scoff at the Paris Pact in hindsight, but perhaps you felt, like I did, a subtle longing or wistfulness that the poor pact would have actually worked. When we travel back uh, much further in time, we arrive at the prophecy in Isaiah and a similar tumult, like the period between the world wars that gave rise to this Paris Pact. Isaiah the prophet was notably called by God into that office in the year that King Uzziah died. We can find that account in chapter 6. Now King Uzziah had reigned in Judah for 52 years, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was considered a righteous king. However, his death was a pivotal moment in the nation's history. Consider the fact that most of the nation's population knew nothing but the reign of King Uzziah. 52 years is a long time. To put things in perspective, Queen Elizabeth has reigned in the UK for 69 years and counting. She's the longest reigning monarch in European history. Most of us can't imagine anybody else on the throne. That sort of tenure is itself a symbol of national security and stability. And the loss of that kind of symbol can obviously be terribly unsettling and disruptive. In King Uzziah's case, it was no different and perhaps even worse. Unfortunately, Uzziah outlived his righteousness. This is uh, the account from 2 Chronicles chapter 26. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, that is Uzziah. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah. And said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, He was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. So in his prosperity, Uzziah grew proud. He wanted to be king and priest. And in this brazen attempt, God struck him with leprosy, And in that single moment, the nation's symbol of stability and security came crashing down in a blaze of scandal. 
Uzziah's life and reign came to an end in infamy, and the nation's fragile peace was shattered. King Uzziah is then succeeded by his son Jotham, whose reign was relatively brief. Jotham was a righteous king like his father Uzziah, but little is recorded about his reign as king. And soon after that, Jotham is followed by his son Ahaz, who happens to be a very wicked man. Ahaz promotes idol worship and participates in it himself uh, actively, even sacrificing his own sons on the altar of a a false god. And by this time, you might remember, there's also a settled division amongst the people of God, the Hebrews. Following the reign of King Solomon, civil war erupted because of a dispute over succession to his throne. Thus, the people of God were divided into two nations, a northern kingdom made up of ten tribes and commonly referred to as Israel, and a southern kingdom made up of the two remaining tribes, commonly referred to as Judah. So in the midst of all of this tumult, Isaiah is called by God to prophesy to Judah, the southern kingdom. And again, there's this newfound upheaval, wickedness in the nation's leadership. And on top of that, the threat of war is brewing just beyond the nation's borders. A threat we'll see from their kinsmen, no less, the northern kingdom of Israel. Obviously, Ahaz and the people of Judah, they wanted peace, but they couldn't ignore the foreboding events that were unfolding around them. You might even say they didn't just want peace, they were desperate for it. But where would they turn in their desperation? I think we do well to ask that question of ourselves, too. Where do we turn in our search for peace? Now, the way God calls Isaiah is very crucial in the context of this, to understand the context of this prophecy in chapter 9 and why events unfolded the way they did. This is how God called Isaiah in chapter 6. And he said, this is God, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, this is Isaiah, How long, O Lord? God said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. For the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth of it remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So at this time, on top of all of that, besides the threat of war from Israel, the might of the empire of Assyria in the east was also growing and expanding. Therefore, in the days of Jotham, king of Judah, Uzziah's son, the northern kingdom of Israel forms an alliance with Syria. We have Assyria and we have Syria. And they form this alliance hoping to withstand the impending threat from Assyria. So this so-called Syro-Ephraimite alliance seeking to force the southern kingdom of Judah to join them, but Judah refuses. This pressure continues in the days of Ahaz until the alliance, that Syro-Ephraimite alliance between Israel and Syria, finally decides to lay siege to Jerusalem, the city of David in Judah. And Jerusalem nearly falls. There was significant damage and loss of life, including 120,000 men of valor from Judah in a single day, which is recounted in Second Chronicles chapter 28. 
That account also tells us this was all because of Ahaz's wickedness, having forsaken the Lord. It's a pretty clear picture. There is war and rumors of war throughout Judah. The once mighty people were now alone and facing powerful enemies. What do you imagine the people of Judah were feeling at this time? You can look with me at chapter 7 of Isaiah. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was sold, Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. <clears throat> Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel, <clears throat> are preparing to wage war on Judah. And Ahaz and all his people are in dread. Their hope is extinguished. Their peace is gone. They're desperate. That fragile peace of the last half century is long gone. Where will they turn? At this point, God tells Isaiah to go to Ahaz and prophesy. And here we see the first glimmer of our Christmas prophecy. It actually begins in Isaiah chapter 7 and unfolds on into chapter 9. While Ahaz and the people shake with fear, Isaiah tells Ahaz this in chapter 7, verse 4. He says, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, of the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Ephraim is a term uh, to describe Israel, a name for Israel. So this is an incredibly clear promise that Isaiah makes to Ahaz. In fact, it's hard to imagine Isaiah being more forthright. The fierce anger of Israel and Syria will not stand. He says plainly that within 65 years, very exact number, this alliance between Rezin of Syria and Pekah of Israel shall not stand, shall be shattered. Ahaz has nothing to fear. After this proclamation to Ahaz, Isaiah even proceeds to take it a step further. He tells Ahaz to ask God for a sign. Ironically, Ahaz refuses to do so. So from his perspective... Burning his sons on a sacrifice upon the altar of a false god is okay, but he couldn't possibly ask God for a sign. Nonetheless, Isaiah is not deterred, and he gives him a sign anyways. He says this in chapter 7, verse 13. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign that God gives that he will not forsake the house of Israel and Judah forever is a virgin giving birth to a son. And not just any son, but Emmanuel, which means God with us. So to recap, a prophet sent by God, whose name, Isaiah, happens to mean Yahweh is salvation, tells Ahaz that a virgin, of all people, should conceive and bear a son, whose name will be called God with us. Do you think it's possible that Ahaz simply misunderstood Isaiah? No chance. 
Will Ahaz and his people hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed? Unfortunately, also no. Not until cities lie waste and only a stump remains. Ahaz has promised peace and security from God himself, but nonetheless, he goes looking for it elsewhere. Instead of trusting God, Ahaz proceeds to form an alliance with big bad Assyria to wage his own war for peace against Israel. Isaiah presumably was not surprised by this. He prophesies again in chapter 8, starting in verse 6. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Ahaz is vindicated initially as his alliance with Assyria accomplishes its purpose. Assyria neutralizes the threat to Judah by conquering Israel and Syria. But not surprisingly, just like our Paris Pact, the alliance with Assyria doesn't stand for long. The king of Assyria forsakes the terms of their agreement And that mighty river, as Isaiah calls it, eventually floods its banks and sets its sights on the land of Judah. And true peace remains elusive still. It's at this point that Isaiah's Christmas prophecy reaches its crescendo in chapter 9. You can look at our our text again with me and consider it now in light of the events that have transpired before. before. Uh, We'll start in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his oppressor, the rod, I'm sorry, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of, the host, the Lord of hosts will do this. By this point, Isaiah is now looking far ahead beyond the tribulation that is imminent at the hand of Assyria. The people will be put into a fiery crucible. But it's not as though God's promises could fail. As God had promised before, he promises again, there will be a lasting, enduring peace for the people of God. And he himself will do this. This coming peace will be totally unlike the Paris Pact or the one between Ahaz and Assyria. This coming peace would be found in a person, a proverbial prince of peace. This God-man would be preeminent in peace, unrivaled and unequal and unshakable. And he would bring about this peace in a manner totally unlike 
any that were attempted before or after. This Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace, would do away with the sources of enmity that withstood genuine peace. Instead of demonstrations of power, he would be weak. Instead of prominence, he would be despised and low. Instead of victory, he would suffer defeat, and willingly so. This Prince of Peace would surrender his throne to be cursed upon a tree. The infinite would become an infant, born of a virgin. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. The Christ, our Prince of Peace, is the Prince of Shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word used here, translated as peace. Shalom might be a familiar word to us. Perhaps you've heard that traditional Jewish greeting, which is Shalom Aleichem, which means peace to you. This concept of shalom definitely represents a lot to the Jewish people. It's surely another detail they couldn't have missed in hearing this prophecy. That Jewish understanding of shalom is manifold. It can obviously mean well-being or welfare, as might be commonly conveyed in the traditional greeting. It's also often used in the Old Testament to convey tranquility or being at ease. Elsewhere, it is used to mean unharmed or unhurt. But ultimately, the root meaning, which is conveyed in part by all of these uses, is wholeness or to be whole. Shalom, therefore, is the ideal, the ultimate consolation. And if you think about it, shalom is arguably the consolation that all mankind is striving after one way or another. Because every single one of us senses the brokenness and longs for wholeness. Presumably, Ahaz thought Assyria could help them achieve shalom. The French foreign minister thought a treaty could bring it about. Even Hitler, arguably, seeking to dominate Europe with his brutality, was seeking peace even if that was only for himself and the German people. Nonetheless, shalom is not something we can achieve by striving for it. It can only be begotten by our Prince of Peace, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. He is our peace, our shalom. There is no peace beside him. As we contemplate the advent of our Prince of Peace, it's important for us to understand the peace that Jesus brings. This peace he brings is threefold. First, Jesus brings peace within. You could perhaps call it an inner peace, but I'm not referring to a Buddhist-style inner peace that describes some sort of heightened state of enlightenment or transcendence, no. Rather, it's an inner peace that comes from a renewed mind fixed upon God and confident lordship, confident in his lordship over all things. It's a mind steadied by a sure faith in the Almighty. Later in Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 26, he says this, You, that is God, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. When a ship is at open sea, there's no way it can navigate effectively in the shifting waters unless it sets its course according to a fixed point. If the captain were to try to navigate by looking at the waters, He would have no true bearing, and he would stray far off course or even be shipwrecked. He must fix his course upon something immovable, something sure and steady, like the sun, moon, and stars. We, too, must set our sights, our course, on a fixed point. And Christ Jesus, our Prince of Peace, is an everlasting rock. Nothing on earth can be compared with him. We can fix our eyes on him amidst the tumult and ever-shifting waters of the world and be at peace. 
David declares, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This inner peace that even David testifies to comes by a steady perseverance as we navigate the valley of the shadow of death with our eyes fixed upon Jesus. James elaborates on this peace in the opening chapter of his epistle. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we fix our eyes upon Jesus and cling to him, all of life's grief and pain and trial only serves to steady our peace and fuel our hope. Which is why James says we can rejoice in our suffering. Because even our suffering can produce steadfastness and assurance. Jesus Christ is our peace, and we can receive him now. If you receive him, no suffering or trial or tribulation will be able to destroy your peace. Along with this inner peace, the peace Jesus brings includes genuine peace with others. We can have peace as we navigate the troubles in this fallen world, war, upheaval, famine, and disease. And we can also have genuine reconciliation with others when we sin against one another. Indeed, this sort of relational strife, I think, can be the most burdensome many of us face. Paul describes the way this relational peace was accomplished in his work in the work of Christ in Ephesians chapter 2. In this text, Paul is specifically referring to the hostility between Jew and Gentile, though it clearly applies to hostility between, that may exist between any two tribes. So he says this in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. <clears throat> Jesus has killed the hostility that exists between us by reconciling each of us in the same manner through his blood. We are all one in Christ, which tears down those dividing walls of hostility. And he has done so without forsaking justice or forgetting mercy. Today, we're a people very obsessed with the idea of justice or fairness. And I think, unfortunately, that has only served to fan the flames of strife among us. If we are fixated on justice, especially justice for ourselves then inevitably there will be less room for mercy. Because ultimately, mercy is not justice. In our relationships with one another, to forgive and extend mercy when we are sinned against would mean that justice must be denied. If we suffer an injustice, it stands to follow that justice would demand retribution. Therefore, when we are fixated on receiving what's fair to us, we will neglect mercy. Unfortunately, on our own, we can have one or the other, justice or mercy. And obviously, no one wants to live in a merciless world. But Jesus, our Prince of Peace, he's made a way to uphold both justice and mercy in his life and death. 
Jesus has brokered a great exchange. He has gathered our sins to himself and surrendered to us his own perfect righteousness before the law. He has removed the penalty for our sins by his death on the cross, thereby satisfying the demands of justice on our behalf. And by suffering that curse for us willingly, he simultaneously extends mercy to us. Therefore, because of Jesus, we no longer have any need to demand justice from others. If you are in Christ, justice has been settled as far as you are concerned. We can be merciful and be at peace with others. Paul says this in his epistle to the Colossians. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to, in, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. We are clearly commanded to forgive others in the same manner in which we are forgiven. That is freely, totally, and without exception or qualification. We have already received our justice in Christ, so forgive others as you have been forgiven. It is glorious to overlook an offense. Do this freely as you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. <clears throat> Finally, and most important of all, our Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, he brings us peace with God. Our peace with God is actually the foundation of all peace. Without it, there is no peace of any kind. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, <clears throat> Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, <clears throat> much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here is a means to secure peace that surely never crossed the mind of Ahaz or anyone else for that matter, laying down your life for your enemy. Church family, the most dire hostility that we suffer is our hostility with God, or rather our hostility toward God. As Paul says, we were enemies of God, and whether we knew it or not, that enmity with God is our most fundamental obstacle to peace. Without that hostility being done away with, we can have no peace at all, no peace within and no peace without. On top of that, we are totally unable to make peace on our own. We cannot call God to the negotiating table and make an agreement to lay down arms. But praise be to God, Jesus, our Prince of Peace, he can make peace, and he has. He has done away with the enmity between us and God by condescending, by putting on flesh and being born of a virgin. 
While we were still sinners and enemies of God, he laid down his life to appease the wrath of God and reconcile us and so bring peace, genuine, lasting peace. If you are in Christ, you have been justified by faith in him. There is no longer any hostility or wrath or strife between you and the Father. And there is nothing that can now destroy that peace because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. In many of his books, C.S. Lewis has made a fascinating observation uh, that I think is pertinent to our consideration of peace this morning. Lewis actually employs a German word to describe a feeling of longing or yearning that is often mysteriously provoked in our hearts. I'm not really sure why an English word wouldn't do, but the German word he uses to describe this feeling is pronounced Sehnsucht. Forgive me, my German is pretty rusty. But translated, this word means longing, yearning, or nostalgia. Lewis, on the other hand, uses the word to describe an inconsolable longing, a longing that is never fully satisfied. Incidentally, when I first heard about this concept, I immediately thought of Christmas time. I think we can all agree there's something romantic and magical about the Christmas season, but it's not like we can celebrate Christmas a single time and never long for it again. And I think that's what Lewis is getting at. He says this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think this idea of inconsolable longing can apply to our desire for peace. I know as I have considered this passage and what true peace really looks like, I am filled with longing. If we're honest, the idea of peace within and peace without provokes a longing in each of us, the same sort of longing that Lewis is talking about. But as we've seen, peace always seems to be just beyond our reach. So Lewis goes on to say this. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have not believed in him and accepted his terms of peace, the enmity between you and God the Father remains. Beloved, his wrath is greater than Assyria's, it is greater than Germany's. Consider this Prince of Peace that laid down his life for you. Consider this Prince of Peace who was born of a virgin, who takes our weakness upon himself, and who carried our sins away, bringing us peace. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. You can receive those promises. You can receive Jesus Christ. Let your longing for peace lead you to him, where you can find true consolation. Unless we all fail the test of history, let us be reminded as we remember and celebrate his first advent that we still await his appearing. We await another advent yet to come. This Christmas season, we remember and celebrate that, we came to, that he came to inaugurate his reign of peace on the earth. But we also await the time when he will come again to consummate his reign of peace once and for all.
Like the people of Judah, we too must cling to the promises of God by faith and not look elsewhere as we hope for peace. Let each of us prepare room in our hearts this Christmas season for Christ the Lord. Welcome him and receive him and be at peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Christ our Lord, the Prince of Peace. Thank you that uh, he put on flesh to dwell amongst, among us. Thank you that he grew and in perfect righteousness fulfilled the law on our behalf. And thank you that he willingly went to the cross to suffer the penalty for our sins and exchange to us his perfect righteousness before the law. I pray, Lord, as forgiven people, we might be forgiving. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would be at peace with one another. And I pray, Lord, that we would uh, rejoice that we have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. May we prepare room in our hearts for Christ our Lord this Christmas season. In his name we pray. Amen.